several miles off the main highway, tucked away in a secluded canyon on prime vineyard property, stands a rustic barn that was built many decades before the vines around it were planted. In that barn, a sophisticated broadcast and recording studio has been built. The barn also has a well-hidden root cellar stocked with many of the world's most exceptional wines, only to be shared with guests who secretly come to offer their insights and tell their stories. Guests are sworn to secrecy and are shuttled to the studio aboard a John Deere tractor. Those who cannot make the journey in person are interviewed by satellite hookup, and sometimes the crew simply sneaks away with microphones in hand and interviews guests in barrel rooms, wine cellars, and other magical places. All of this is done like clockwork every single week so that we can bring you another episode of Grape Encounters Radio. Peel me a grape Crush me some ice Skin me a peach Save the fuzz for my pillow And it is time for your weekly grape encounter. And this, I think, uh, will be, at least in the beginning, a somber grape encounter. Uh, I am reminded of something that happened about a year ago. And I'll start by saying this, that I think I have probably several thousand friends between Facebook and Instagram and LinkedIn that are in the wine industry. And those networks are always abuzz with things that are going on. Every once in a while, there's a big news story that will dominate the discussions online. But back on October 9th last year, just a little over a year ago, late in the night, I happened to be up and I happened to watch the internet explode, absolutely explode. And it was not the only thing that was exploding. And it's a terrible, terrible story. And on Grape Encounters, I do not like to talk about bad stories. I don't even like to talk about bad wine. But this was the firestorm that absolutely annihilated parts of the city of Santa Rosa, right in the heart of Sonoma County. The devastation that occurred all over Napa and Sonoma is just unbelievable. It was the worst fire in California history. And I have on the line with me somebody who is not only special because he has memorialized, along with others, this most tragic of events, but he also happens to be a mentor of mine, somebody who has taught me a lot and for whom my radio career would not be anywhere close to where it is were it not for him. He is also co-owner and president of... KSRO, among other stations in Santa Rosa. They are a big station with a big audience, and they just won a big award, by the way. And Michael O'Shea, welcome to the show. It is great to be here. I'm a huge fan of Grape Encounters. I have followed uh, your career, David, uh, for the last, I don't know, 12 years or something in terms of this program. And when I uh, relocated to Wine Country, California in 2013, 2014, I thought this is a show that I've got to get on my radio station because we're right smack dab in the middle of the Sonoma Napa wine country. And so you've been a featured performer and a featured uh, show on KSRO now for a number of years. And we really appreciate you and your talent and all that you bring to our radio station. And of course, you know, we're being heard all over the country and uh, I couldn't be prouder of that. It, oh gosh, it took a long time to get to that point, but a certain soft spot in my heart for KSRO just because you guys are the news station smack dab in wine country and a very special station 
Foundation. And before we jump into our story today, I wanted to mention something and just give you kudos on one other level, and that is a Marconi Award. Uh, this is so amazing, and it gave me chills down my spine for hours when I learned about this, since uh, I've had a chance to participate not just as a syndicated show on the station, but to do some other things as well. Talk about what just happened. Well, we, uh, KSRO and our news director and morning anchor, Pat Kerrigan, received a very enormous honor just recently. First of all, in the middle of the summer, we were nominated as a finalist for the Marconi Awards that are awarded every year by the National Association of Broadcasters. It is our version of the Oscars or the Emmys or the Pulitzer. And we were honored with this nominee for finalists due to the coverage, the community involvement, the engagement that we did with the community, particularly surrounding that terrible period back a little more than a year ago when uh, our North Bay was on fire. So uh, the National Association of Broadcasters uh, invited us to join them at their big national convention in Orlando back at the end of uh, September, September 27th. And it's just a magic moment to me when we were announced as not only the winner of Radio Station of the Year for our market size, but also Pat Kerrigan was honored to be named the Radio Personality of the Year for our market size. And so out of 17,000 radio stations in the United States, there was only about a dozen Marconi's handed out that night, and we received two of them. They don't have an award for best wine show, do they? They don't, but there is something around there that I know comes out of Los Angeles for wine and food programming. Okay. (laughs) I'm going to have to get you involved then. So you win a Marconi, and in large part, it's due to this amazing work that you guys did. And not just when the fire was raging, but afterwards, it's a story, a long story of recovery. I got involved to some degree, but nothing like what you guys were doing. How awful do you feel at the same time as you feel wonderful when you receive an award for a story that you wish you never had to report on? Reporters report on stories that happen all over the world, but when it's happening in your neighborhood, I mean, it's got to be a terribly bittersweet feeling for you. Well, at the time, yes, it becomes very personal. It also resonated real early on that this was going to be the biggest news story in Santa Rosa in modern history. When a town of uh, 150,000 loses 6,000 homes in about 45 minutes with a series of fires, there were a number of fires, but the biggest was the Tubbs fire that came ripping through our town in the middle of the night. 6,000 homes were evaporated. The firestorm, and it was fed by 80 mile an hour hurricane force Diablo winds. And that's our version of the Santa Ana winds that Southern California deals with. Basically a very dry, a very warm or hot Easter flow coming out of the east going to the west, which is very unusual. Most of the time we have onshore flows off the ocean with that wonderful cool air that makes these grapes grow so well and provides the misty air and the humidity that we need for all of this. But this was the opposite of that. The winds were out of the east and they were raging up to 80 miles an hour and a couple of downed power lines and all of a sudden our city was on fire. And I'll never forget that night, two o'clock in the morning, I am awakened when a little beeper goes off on my radio that says the power has failed. And it's just so I can switch over to battery power. And at the same time, I looked around and uh, I could see that the the entire neighborhood was out of power. wasn't just my house. And then I smelled smoke in my house. And I will tell you, that's a combination that is not a great cocktail for... I know that exact feeling. I lived for years up in Lake Arrowhead in California. And I will never forget the day that the morning I woke up, six o'clock in the morning, suffocating from smoke, power out. And when it was all over, literally... 
hours later, almost 500 of my neighbors had lost their home. I was only four or five houses away from it. That is almost what happened to me personally. Yeah, it's a terrible feeling. I woke up uh, with that combination kind of in a daze, wondering if I'm dreaming or wondering if, you know what, I I checked my my little dog Cosmo's okay. I opened the front door to see what's going on in my neighborhood. And the first thing I see is a wall of orange and red that looked like it was five, six hundred feet away. It turned out it was about a half a mile away, but it looked like it was right in my face. And uh, the neighborhood's all dark. I'm starting to see some of my neighbors wake up. I'm seeing a few people get in their cars. I grab my camera. I'm a news hound. I uh, drive off with my dog to start taking pictures of what the fire is. And then I realize, because I see the evacuation, I see the line of cars at two o'clock in the morning, bumper to bumper on my little neighborhood street. And uh, at that point, I just head for the radio station because at that point, that's that's really what my job. It's time to go to work. And my station's only about typically five minutes away, and it took me a half an hour. But our city was just blitzed with this fire that was moving a football field every three seconds. Oh, my God. And you, you just can't even imagine a wall of flames coming like that. And the temperatures that it reached were over 3,000 degrees. Oh, gosh. The reason we know that, David, is there are pictures, and I witnessed firsthand, aluminum from car wheels melting and running in the street, and the melting temperature of that alloy is 3,000 degrees. Which is why it's so hard to weld. Uh, My guest is Michael O'Shea. He is the president of KSRO, and then there are four other stations you have there. Our company is called Amaturo Sonoma Media Group, named after my business partner, Lawrence Amaturo, and uh, we have four FMs and then KSRO, which is AM and FM. And I know it's unusual to talk up another station when you're talking through a different station speakers. But this is a story about wine country. It's a story about tremendous loss. It's a story about perseverance and rebuilding. And I'm so glad to revisit the story a year later and know that things have changed incredibly. The city of Santa Rosa is the biggest city in the county of Sonoma. Santa Rosa is the home to all of these winery workers and people who are in uh, ancillary industries. We're the largest city between San Francisco in Portland, Oregon. My guest is Michael O'Shea, not only a tremendous, tremendous journalist and figure in the radio business, but he and an amazing group of people put together a documentary. It's called Urban Inferno. And and Michael, I really appreciate you being on. Uh, We'll be back in just a second with more Grape Encounters. No good story about wine deserves to be bottled up. Committed to uncorking a new wine story every day is your host, David Wilson right after this. We like to talk about wine. He's back, and he's not alone. Your Grape Encounter continues with David Wilson and a little help from his friends. Back with Grape Encounters Radio and Michael O'Shea. And if you're in the radio business, you know Michael's name. He's been around forever. And Michael ended up in Santa Rosa some years ago and took on the responsibility of sitting at the helm of five stations, including uh, one station that really played a key role in getting information out to the people 
in the wine regions that were literally attacked, brutally attacked by Mother Nature. And they were savvy enough to actually document a lot of what happened and to really give people an inside glimpse at how horrifying things like this are. Because if you're not in a fire region, you don't know what it's like to be in it. I've been in it twice. I've been evacuated from my home for 10 days twice. Anyway, Michael, the film is Urban Inferno, and it's got a lot of attention. Tell me about film festivals and the awards, and also what makes up the documentary, because you used a lot of different sources. We did, although virtually every single second on that film was of the fire. There was no B-roll. We didn't purchase any outside contractors' footage to bolster any effects or to just fill time. Everything came from the Tubbs fire in the first six or seven hours of the fire. I would say this as a prelude to the discussion on Urban Inferno, the night Santa Rosa burned. When something like that happens, the middle of the night, two o'clock in the morning, you wake up like I did with the power off, with the smell of smoke in my house and looking outside, seeing a wall of flames just uh, half a mile away. You get into a fight or flight mode. With me, I went down to the radio station. But here's what happens when that combination comes together. Number one, somebody wakes up in the morning and they have no power. They have no cell phone service because the poles are either melted or the bandwidth is so jammed up with everybody trying to use them. You can't use your cell service. So many people are dependent on listening or watching videos on cell uh, or getting their news from uh, their smartphone. It's dead. There's nothing there. Your telephone doesn't work. As I mentioned, there's no power. And there's only two ways to find information in that moment of fight or flight. One is to knock on your neighbor's door. Number two was local community radio. Local community radio, and it was a number of stations in Santa Rosa, not just mine, but certainly I was focused on my station. Local community radio showed people where to go, where not to go, how to get there, which routes to take, literally saving lives when this fire, fed by hurricane force winds, ripped up our city. 6,000 homes destroyed in a matter of about 45 minutes. That's hard to get a grasp on, but when you see the video, you see the footage, the drone footage, you see some of the fire department footage, and the aftermath of nothing but a barren wasteland where homes used to stand just hours ago. It does resemble the movies that we saw on the aftermath of the Hiroshima atomic bomb. It does look like that. It really does look like it. And uh, like I said at the beginning of the show, I had so many friends who were posting online their plight. I can't even count the number of people that I know who lost homes and sitting and it was so sur- surreal for me because I come up there, you know, fairly regularly to see you guys and to do interviews in Napa and Sonoma and two of the hotels that I regularly stayed at. Bam, one after another, gone, burned to the ground in in what, five seconds, 10 seconds. It's astounding to me. The amount of uh, flame that, that moved through our area, again, fed by these uh, outrageous Di- Diablo winds, just evaporated in several parts of the city. I want to jump over to wine country and the impacts there, but Michael, I, I'm going to let you finish with Urban Inferno and all that it took to put this documentary together, which is a great piece of historical work. Um, about two weeks after the fires, when we first had a chance to draw a breath, I had a knock at my door and it was a gentleman that's a local physician, a psychiatrist, whose wife is also a physician with Kaiser, the one of the big uh, HMOs here in town. And he said, I'm an independent filmmaker. I've produced several films on mental health. Here's copies of the DVDs. I want you to join me in us producing 
a story on this horrible fire as told by locals as it should be. And so I joined Dr. Stephen Seeger and his wife, Meta Seeger, and I enlisted Pat Kerrigan, our morning news anchor and news director, and the four of us took on the co-producer roles. We filmed most of the interviews of the first responders and the people who had such terrible losses in my living room on Saturdays and Sundays in January, February, and March. We went into post-production in April and May, and we finished the film in July and debuted it July 19th at the Roxy here in Santa Rosa to two sold-out performances. It went on to show for seven weeks locally at the Third Street Cinemas. Seven weeks, really? Three three shows a night, and many of those were also sold out. We had a total of about six to 7,000 people that saw the film inside movie theaters, and then another 100,000 that saw it via television or internet. And Urban Inferno, the night Santa Rosa burned, was nominated for a number of film festivals. We were named the best documentary feature in the South American Film Festival, Cinematic Arts in Chile. We won the best documentary short at the Las Vegas Film Festival and the Laughlin, Nevada Film Festivals. We were just notified that we have been named a finalist for best documentary in the Sydney, Australia Film wow. Festival. And these are, that's just the beginning. We're entered in film festivals, over 40 of them all over the globe over the next six or eight or nine months. And uh, it's and the interesting thing about this film is that it's not sensationalized for purposes of, of sensation. No, not at all. It is really telling a story with police body cams and with people who were deeply affected. And it's told how a community comes together and how a community comes back. And that's the uplifting part at the end of the film that we promised the community of Santa Rosa that we would not just be in here to show a bunch of fire engines. We were in here to tell a story of how a city was was right. knocked down and how it is coming back. So this is a very interesting place to segue because in the Napa and Sonoma wine regions, there was so much loss of business, not because of fire, but because nobody wanted to come up there because what they were afraid of is Napa and Sonoma were essentially no more. And I had so many people reach out to me at the time who were wineries and businesses there saying, please tell people you can come here that the things that you really want to see are still here. They're still intact. And if we ever needed you, we need you now. Grapevines are pretty fire resistant. Yeah. Uh, they're extremely well irrigated. They're not dry. They're not like a lot of the tender brush around here that got dried up during the drought and caught on fire. So we just completed a really solid 2018 harvest. I just attended the big harvest fair at the Sonoma County Fairgrounds, and it was a big celebration of what was really a very, very good harvest. Wine country is back. And when Pat Kerrigan, as we mentioned in an earlier segment, KSRO won two Marconi Awards at the National Broadcasters Group. And Pat Kerrigan, our news director, said in her acceptance speech on stage, she said, I want to ask all of you broadcasters in the audience tonight, there were thousands of them, please go back to your radio stations and announce that the wine country is in business. We're there. We're, we're there serving some great wine. We're there serving some great food. We have beautiful hospitality. Wine country is open for business. We wanted to spread that word on behalf of our community. The wine industry is the thing that makes California such an amazing, special place, and it brings... 90% of the wine that is domestically made to your home. So anyway, Michael, I, I wish we could talk more. We will. We'll catch up from time to time on this. I'm glad you were able to join me, and you're such a hero of mine. And uh, Michael, thanks a lot for being on, and thanks for the great work that you do. Thank you, David. I really enjoy uh, your show, and keep up the great work, too. All right, we're going to be back with more Grape Encounters in just a second. Allison Jordan joins us next from the Wine Institute. 
People sometimes say it's the wine talking. Well, everyone knows that wine can't talk. That's why a bunch of graves got together and hired David Wilson to do the talking for them. <laughs> David will uncork today's story after this. Did you know that you can visit us in person right in the heart of the Central Coast wine country of California? We can get you a special rate at one of our loveliest hotels, introduce you to some epic wines in person, help you chart out amazing self-guided winery tours, and tell you stories that we're not allowed to share on the radio. Okay, that last one was a, a stretch. Here's David. All right, we're back with Grape Encounters Radio and now going to jump into a topic that we talk about a lot on the show. In fact, my guest has been on a number of times. It's Allison Jordan. She's the executive director of the California Sustainable Wine Alliance. She's also the vice president at the Wine Institute of Environmental Affairs. And she's with me now because they've got something coming up that's a really big deal. And Allison, I first of all, appreciate you joining me today. I wish we weren't radio because I'm actually looking at you on the screen. You're not here with me, but you're just such a delight to have on. And you have such an interesting job, you don't look like the typical tree hugger. <laughs> you know, I think that we need to get beyond just a certain type of person and it really needs to become part of the mainstream. And for the California wine industry, sustainability really has been so widely embraced. So, so you're actually a grape hugger, a grape hugger or a vine hugger. So I, I want to start here because people sometimes get on me a little bit about how much I talk about the sustainability topic. Because I think we're just bombarded in this world today, and especially from the marketing sense, everybody talking about an environmentally friendly and biodynamic and organic and, you know, everything is about having clean food, clean environment, you know, being good stewards of the land. But I think also with a lot of people, it doesn't really connect. You know, they hear it so much. They're so bombarded with it that it's like, oh, yeah, here we go again. It's just another sales pitch. Do you get that sense? You know, I definitely think there's some confusion out there about what all of these different terms mean. But for me, because sustainability is such a comprehensive set of practices, and it really causes you to weigh those trade-offs between being environmentally friendly and socially equitable and economically viable, it ends up being something that is both very practical and also can make the biggest strides in terms of, of actual on-the-ground improvements. And if we can really have this be mainstream for an entire industry, just imagine the improved um, environment and quality of life and all of the things that we like to provide in our communities anyways. <laughs> it's only in further enhanced by our sustainability efforts. Well, I think what's really interesting is just how much further the wine industry has gone than what seems to be just about every other industry out there. Yeah, I've been actually working with the California wine industry on sustainability for the past 15 years. So I've really seen this evolution. You know, there were obviously many early adopters. I think environmental stewardship is part of the ethic of the industry. But this idea that we also want to be measuring to manage and we want to be able to document improvements so we can share that with all of our community and stakeholders and nonprofits that are paying attention 
attention to our industry. All of that has just been really broadly embraced. And now we also are seeing a lot more interest in the marketplace. So it makes sense from so many different perspectives for vineyards and wineries to be engaged. I think you make a a really huge point too, especially at the beginning when you were talking about the people who are actually growing the grapes and making the wine. While there are, granted, a lot of huge corporate entities that are in the wine game now, it all came, certainly in California, out of small families. I mean, the Mondavis were not rich people, you know. The Gallo family initially, you know, they weren't rich people. They were just farmers that came and created an amazing industry where there was none and actually created a need where there was none. And they're very connected to the environment. And they don't want to literally, you know, have train tracks stop at the uh, entrance to the winery and constantly dump off things that they need. They want to be able to do everything as much as is reasonably possible on site. Be self-sufficient. I mean, that's really the word, and maybe we should use that word more often, is self-sufficient without causing any damage whatsoever, giving back as much or more than we took. I love the way you're thinking about it. I've heard some farmers also talk about it, like you say, um, about it's really about generational farming. And while, yes, there are some corporate-owned wineries, we're still predominantly a family-owned industry. And so there really is that sense of wanting to pass on a vibrant business to future generations and all of the things that go into making high quality wine, like healthy soils and enough energy and water quality, all those things that are part of sustainability also help ensure that we have the best quality grapes and wine possible too. Well, two things I, I would probably add here is even the corporate giants in the wine industry are largely made up from a personnel standpoint of people who came out of family operations. I think it's one of the things that's a strength of the industry as we have this fourth, fifth generational farmers like you were talking about, but also people that were maybe successful in other industries and that were able to bring that information to make our industry innovative and thinking about things like corporate social responsibility. So it's really all of those different viewpoints that have helped strengthen this commitment to sustainability. And you hear this all the time, and I always give kudos to Gallo as an example and and Kendall Jack and people like that, these are companies that are dumping enormous amounts of money into research and development, trying to figure out the best way to be the least intrusive on the environment. And they're also pretty good about passing that information along to others so that somebody that doesn't have the advantage of all that huge amount of capital can follow in those footsteps or at least benefit from the research that, you know, was funded over years and years with, you know, literally hundreds of millions of dollars. It is a collective effort and there's almost nobody that's, I hate to say this, but sticking up the proverbial middle finger and saying, I'm just going to make a mess out of things and I really don't care. I have not encountered too many vintners and growers with that attitude. (laughs) They wouldn't be able to continue doing what they're doing and it matters in so many ways. So would you say that generally speaking, the lion's share of the people who are making wine also in their hearts want to do the right thing 
or how much of it, and you know, I, I hate to put this kind of a, a pressure on you, but how much of it is because pressure is put on them? Are there people that would just resist because it's just too much work and too much trouble and too much expense? You know, I think most of the people I've encountered certainly just have that environmental ethic, this idea of passing on farms to future generations. All of that seems to be part of the fabric of the industry, but we have even more evidence of it because we have the California Code of Sustainable Wine Growing and our sustainable wine growing program and our certification program and the many certification programs that exist around California. And the participation levels are just off the charts. We're the fourth largest wine growing region in the world. And we just recently got some numbers from our partners, um, the Napa Valley Vintners and the Lodi Wine Grape Commission and the Vineyard Team and asked for their numbers too. And we looked to make sure we were, believe it or not, many people get certified to multiple certifications. So we made sure there wasn't the duplication And roughly 40% of all of California's wine grape makers is now certified. And I think we overlook this a lot. We talk about uh, sustainability as though it only has to do with plants and land, but it also has to do with people. And, you know, for far too long in this country and, well, certainly all around the world, the people who do the hard work are also the people who get the least credit and benefit the least. So can you just elaborate on that for a second? Because that's so big. You're right. And obviously, it's just critical for our industry from everything from every aspect of farming to the cellar workers to everyone who works in the winery, selling the wine, etc. So employees are a huge part of it. In our California Code of Sustainable Wine Growing, we have a whole chapter devoted to your employees, how how they're treated, um, if they get training, the health and safety issues, how you address those. Also, do you recognize them for their contributions to sustainability? When you think about water use efficiency, there are no better people to ask what to do than the people who are working on the front lines and who really see where there maybe are irrigation lines that need to be maintained in a different way to address issues or in the cellar, making sure you sweep before you use a hose to wash down the floor and all kinds of ways that the employees are really engaged in sustainability. We're hearing more and more about green teams and all kinds of innovations that vineyards and wineries have to ensure they're both maintaining and retaining their employees. And then we also cover neighbors and community issues because they are so critical. So thinking about what types of impacts you might have on your community, but also what are the issues that matter in terms of the long-term viability for your industry? So are you working on housing issues and education and English as a second language and other ways that you can support the community? And our industry is just unbelievably philanthropic. Okay, well, let's break and then we'll come back and I want to talk about an award that is very coveted that everybody wants to have. Only a couple of people will get it. And we'll talk about that next when we return with Allison Jordan, the executive director of the California Sustainable Wine Alliance. And also, gosh, the vice president of environmental affairs at the Wine Institute. And the Wine Institute is a big deal. I mean, it's got to be the most powerful advocacy group where wine is concerned on this planet. Okay, Allison, stick with me. We'll be right back. So just what is a grape encounter? It's when wine is the catalyst of a really great time. Your grape encounter with David Wilson will continue in just a moment. Like certain wines, he's syrupy, sweet, 
and has long legs. Here's David Wilson. We're back with Allison Jordan. She is the executive director of the California Sustainable Wine Alliance. She works out of the Wine Institute in beautiful San Francisco, California. How come you don't have a yurt up in Napa or Sonoma? I'm on the road enough. <laughs> I, have to, <laughs> I should also be offsetting my greenhouse gas emissions. <laughs> have you yurted? I have not. <laughs> I've never done it. <laughs> I do I'll that. have to try it sometime. That would demonstrate your ultimate commitment to the land, Allison. Exactly. <laughs> hey, listen, you guys have something coming up. It's the green metal, right? That's right. So it must be made out of kryptonite because that's the only metal I can think of that's green. It glows in the dark. (laughs) Yes, as do you, by the way. (laughs) Thanks. Yeah, so we have this California Green Metal. It's a Sustainable Wine Growing Leadership Awards, and we present it along with the California Association of Wine Grape Growers and Wine Institute, but also the Lodi Wine Grape Commission, Napa Valley Vintners, Sonoma County Wine Growers, and the Vineyard Team, basically all of the organizations that have been really helping bolster sustainability in the California wine industry. And we decided that we really wanted to find a way to shine a light on leaders in sustainability in our industry. Wow. So uh, what do I have to, I guess I'm not up for the award right this year. <laughs> you well, have maybe, to be you know, a vineyard I, or winery. Hey, well, but wait a second. I'm promoting this all the time. I would think that there's got to be a category for me. No? Well, we do appreciate your interest <laughs> in the topic and maybe we'll have to broaden the categories. I would say that very few Americans or even people from any part of this planet have even the slightest clue as to how big this industry is. To put it into perspective, I'm down on the central coast of the Paso Robles area. If you go south of here, uh, you can drive for close to two hours south and see nothing but grapes. In fact, I could probably create a route where I never left a vineyard. That's going south. Going north, it gets even more interesting because you've got that same at least two hours. And with a few breaks here and there, we then get up to Napa, Sonoma, Mendocino, Lake County. It could be a very different story if you just had people working the land that cared only about the profits and not about the land. But instead of seeing overworked farmland and the remnants of an industry that doesn't really care, they've created basically environments that people want to spend the whole day driving and looking at it and so well maintained, so well taken care of. And this is the best part. So healthy. I mean, incredibly healthy. Think about the wine industry. You're welcoming visitors from all over the world. You're often living on the property with your children or employees are living nearby. So it makes sense that they take great care. It's interesting you mentioned one thing about what you see from the roads. And and that's one thing is like the public perception that vineyards are just yeah. everywhere and expanding. And we have about 615,000 acres, which sounds like a lot and, it, and it's significant, but it's actually well less than 1% of California's acreage. So it is relatively relatively small and proportional, I think, to what people think, but it shows you it's even more important that we're able to document and communicate our sustainability commitment. Yeah, but it's only 650,000 acres. That just doesn't seem right. Have you counted, really? (laughs) I've got to go out and count grapevines. Okay, we just have a few minutes left, so let's talk about the various medals then that people can receive. And, And here's the deal. We do have a lot of people from the industry that listen, so please take note. Don't be afraid to pat yourself on the back because you can nominate yourself, right? Absolutely. You'd nominate yourself or apply and um, our applications will be posted in early November on greenmetal.org. So you can learn more about it in advance. We'll have the application there. And then it will be due on February 6th. February 6th. 
2019. How long is the application form? You know, it's only a few pages, but we really want people to highlight their most recent initiatives and also do as much as they can to show innovation and quantification. So, you know, if you're going to be talking about energy efficiency, can you quantify how much energy you've saved or cost savings? So we found the most successful applicants are really able to track those types of things. And it's a way to really share best practices and, again, to really showcase leaders in our industry. Very interesting. And is it okay if I make crummy wine? In other words, wine doesn't taste so good. Can I still win an award? (laughs) All the criteria are on the greenmetal.org. But yeah, so you can apply for the leader award. And then we also have an environment, community, and business award. And so we encourage people to select one of those in addition to the leader award if they're applying for that. And then really dig into some of those examples of innovation, cost savings, how you're engaged with the community, etc. I remember ranting about 10 or 11 years ago when we first started the show. At the time, I don't think anybody was really using the word sustainability much in the public. But there was certainly a lot of talk about organic wines, biodynamic wines, wines that are made without chemical fertilization, let's call it that. Uh, and I used to rant and go, would somebody please find me a decent bottle of environmentally friendly wine? A funny thing happened along the way. Now those are the better wines. Did it take a while for the grape growers and winemakers to figure it out and make that transition from, oh, we can grow a really pretty good grape if we sprinkle this from this chemical company and this from that chemical company on it. When was the wow moment, the epiphany, when people started to go, wait a second, I can actually make better wine if I do this? You know, I think from a sustainability standpoint, people have really seen all along that there is a lot of value in stepping back, looking at all of your property, how you're managing every aspect of your operation and spending a lot of time in your vineyard and really paying attention to all of the things can actually really improve wine quality. So I think and hear anecdotally all the time that people think this really does have impact on wine quality and improve. I think one of the challenges with organic wines and having two different categories, one is organic wine where you can't add sulfites, which can help preserve the shelf life of wines. Maybe sometimes people tried an organic wine that just wasn't quite the way that the timing should have been had. And I think that reputation has kind of stuck with some of these programs. But I certainly see the evolution of fantastic wines being made with organically grown grapes and made sustainably, grown sustainably. So, But they weren't always. They really weren't. I mean, there was a time there where people were trying their darndest, but there, there was a transition that was going on, I think. Peer-to-peer exchange of information, our fantastic academic institutions, all of that have helped improve quality overall for California wine. Plus, you know, it's, it's human nature, certainly American nature, to look for the shortcuts in life. It's easier to take a diet pill than to, you know, go for a hike, right? But I think there's been so much investment. I'm speculating here because you're the one who knows. There seems to be so much investment in time and energy and intellectual capital that now it's easier to do it the right way than maybe the wrong way. And we're having a time of reckoning with that. Well, listen, Allison, I appreciate you coming on. It's always a pleasure to have you on the show. She is not Mother Nature, but she is Mother Nature's child, that is for sure. And you're doing such great work over there and always with a smile on your face, too. I'm I'm not sure if that's always the case. Doing the good work. All right, Allison, thanks so much. Allison Jordan, Executive Director of the California Sustainable Wine Alliance and also the VP of Environmental Affairs for the Wine Institute. Always a pleasure. Thanks so much, David. That'll do it for Grape Encounters this week. We will be back here, same station next week, sitting in the same chair, but I'm going to be drinking something different next week. I didn't even tell you what I'm drinking today. We'll see you. Bye-bye.
Your Grape Encounter isn't over. We're just taking a breather until next week's edition. 